0: This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. We would expect to see some rather concerning numbers for a while.
1: I will continue to stand up for these regions that I know and love. We know how important it is for the parliament to meet. Isolation, testing. Being bored
0: is much better than being in intensive care.
1: Hello and welcome to the party room. I'm Patricia Carvel as the host of RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing.
2: And I'm Frank Kelly from RM Breakfast and PK. We're going to be joined in the party room by Shane Wright, Senior Economics Correspondent with The Age and the City Morning Herald to look at the economic merits of Budget 2020, a budget like we haven't seen ever before. As it's uh, come out, of course, in the wake of this pandemic, but let's talk about the politics here because the the budget cell is very much underway now. Anywhere you look, any screen you look at, any radio you might be turning on, all over social media, it's the treasurer, it's Scott Morrison outspooking the budget.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's kind of wall-to-wall, budget sell, and the, the response to the budget, I find, is really mixed in many ways, right? I it's mean, very
2: mixed. I mean, uh, not surprisingly, I think we mentioned this yesterday, business loves this budget because there's a lot of money for business in it, you know, $26 billion for for basically money back tax incentives for instant asset write-offs if a business person buys a new coffee machine or a photocopy or a truck or a harvester, whatever it is. They really love it. Solomon Lou Piquet, who is chair of Premier Investments, which is a very big retail company. It's got brands like Just Jeans, Portman's, a whole lot of others. He said, and I love this quote, it's the best budget he's ever seen. (laughs) So that's pretty extreme, the best budget he's ever seen. But welfare groups, unions, for the most part, they're not so satisfied with it.
1: Not so satisfied is a good way to put it. Look, they're um, picking the holes in it and talking about who it's forgotten, right? That's the other thing. Now, this budget isn't a sort of, obviously, one of those slash-and-burn budgets. So it's not, you know, this is not Tony Abbott in in uh, <laughs> in after the, he was elected, you know, with his budget that, of course, became such a big issue for his government. It's not that kind of budget because we're in a recession. So their point has been who's been left out. Now, ACOS, you know, that represents the welfare group, says the lack of support for people on welfare and low incomes is the big issue. The ACTU, the, the trade union movement, is really critical on the focus on tax cuts, but also on this this thing we talked about in our quick podcast that we recorded on Wednesday. We're recording this now Thursday, our, our longer podcast with Shane. But that measure, which is, I think, the signature measure of the budget, the young worker incentive for under 35s, they're now picking the holes in it. And there are holes, right? There are issues and uh, potential exploitation. And that's what they're really zeroing in on. One of them, for instance, that, you know, um, it encourages part-time jobs at the expense of full-time jobs. The idea that you can um, hire two people instead of one or, um, you know, try and sort of churn the system to get rid of them and then try and get a new one. Uh, This is the stuff that they're pointing out. And I, I think that it's gaining some momentum in some ways. I mean, I wouldn't say that... That I think that's why it's sort of a mixed response. I wouldn't say that the budget's gone off and everyone loves it. I think
2: people are kind of now asking important questions about Well it. it's always the case I mean whenever you create a program you have losers whenever you put rules in place you have people, you have gaps that people can find their way through. I mean that's human nature. We've had, this is not the first time a government has come out with a job subsidy scheme to try and get people to hire older workers or in this case younger workers. Remember Tony Abbott I think it was, had that PATH scheme of interns, you know people, young people were being encouraged to do uh, some work I think for free up to a certain number of hours and then get paid or, or some thing around that. There was a lot of problems... Always with these schemes because they get gamed. And and then the government tries to put rules around them, and the more rules you have, the less user-friendly they are for business. I spoke with Peter Strong from the Council of Small Business who says he thinks it might take a while for some of his small business membership to to come on board with this because although they like the idea of a subsidy to hire someone, the more rules around it there are, the more complications it is, the harder it is for them to, you know, the more constraints they have to hire them for more hours or you know, they have to keep them on for longer. Longer or it's harder to sack them if they're no good or they have to come out of the unemployment queue, whatever it is, the less attractive they are to a small business. So there's always constraints on these things. By and large... Everyone, I think, thinks it's a good idea to give encouragement to hire young people because we know from recessions past that the tail of a recession is always youth unemployment and the government's desperately trying to sort of curtail that this time. Um, but yes, the what the problem is, I think, we haven't seen the rules, we haven't seen the guidelines, we haven't seen the restrictions. So unions and others are saying, well, you know, there's too many holes here. Is this just going to be a way for big companies to use government money to um, to churn through young unemployed people? There's yeah, not a lot of trust, I think, around it.
1: Trust is a great word actually for it. That's right. The trust issue is huge. And if you look at historical precedent, I mean, Fran, I've covered job subsidy schemes <laughs> before in previous governments, Labor and Liberal, and they can be exploited. And then there is often an overhaul of the rules. So getting it right to start with when it's such a huge program, um, really unprecedented $4 billion, you need to get it right. It's not sort of a little pilot program. It's a huge program and it will well, have fact, enormous consequences.
2: Well, yeah, and not only is it $4 billion, PK, but the Treasury says it will create 450,000 jobs. So it's the centrepiece of this budget in the sense that the whole purpose of this budget, the government keeps telling us, is to create jobs. So, you know, they need to get it right. I think, you know, no one's complaining that this measure is there. They just want to make sure that the the rules around it are, are are right and watertight and the money's not being wasted. But also, it, more than that, it's what else is there for others because under-35s are not the only people on the unemployment queue, particularly since the pandemic, where a million more Australians have become unemployed. And the statistics tell us, in fact, you can go through it for us, PK, you know, there's many, many, many thousands, hundreds of thousands of people over the age of 35 on the unemployment queue and a lot of them are women.
1: Yep, uh, more than 900,000, so it's huge. It's It's a huge number. Uh, and it's quite consequential uh, and to look at how that actually affects the labour market. When you incentivise one group, how it affects the other group, Uh, perverse outcomes can be achieved by accident, right? But Not by design, obviously, but by by accident. So that's a huge issue. Look, let's talk about the other thing that I think has become the biggest emerging issue out of this budget, and we already touched on it uh, in our quick take in our other podcast, but that's women right the 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 big question around women and i think this is becoming a bit of a headache for the government actually mm. what i want to say though about it is that i can't believe they didn't see it coming and i say that because josh friedenberg in the lead up to the budget was telling us young people and women had been disproportionately affected he said it himself now he said it he because he said it in
2: the speech
1: yeah he said it because it's it's a fact right but but i'm mentioning the before rather than just the speech because I had the sense uh, from analysing so many budgets as you have and and the way that budgets, like the theatre of budgets, if I can explain it, the sort of the two weeks before and the positioning and the mm. language and all of the stuff that, that politicians do, treasurers do, to get us ready for its themes. My view was, oh, yeah, it's going to be a huge women's economic package, right? They're, they're going to sort of go hard on this because they know that this is a vulnerability, that it's a real issue. And then I think they quite obviously under-delivered in that particular area, and now they've spent, on your program, Fran, that I listen to very closely, as I do, um, as I run around the park... Uh, they've been trying to mop it up as an issue and say, no, 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 Mm. all of our programs help women. Of course they do. Of course they don't say women are excluded from JobKeeper or women are excluded from anything.
2: Women run small businesses too, you know, women are in manufacturing, women are right through the economy. It's not just one or the other. Fair enough, fair point.
1: Definitely a fair point. But that's like saying, you know, I don't know, like anything. I mean, women women get paid less than men. We know that because there's a gender pay gap. That doesn't mean you go, oh, but everyone gets paid. You talk about the detail, don't you? So so this has become, I think, a big problem for them. Um, They're trying to neutralise it. They've got all of the women out, right? Notice this. Notice the spin going on. Who's out? Karen Andrews talking to you. She's one of the female ministers. Who's the other woman they've got out? Anne Rushton, who's the the minister essentially for welfare, right? They've got all of these women out trying to tell that other story because they know this is a problem. Let's hear Karen Andrews talking to you. She's the industry minister trying to explain it all. Well, there's a lot of support for men and women in the the budget, and I'm not going to feed into um, stereotypical uh, support for uh, gendered uh, career paths for for women. Clearly, what we have is a range of support measures that are in place that will assist uh, all Australians. All Australians. Uh, problem, as I as I mentioned, is that they identified the two groups that were, you know. Australian, but also of a specific kind of Australian young people and women. Mm.
2: And this notion, that you know, heard the minister there saying she's not going to play into the sort of gendered career path thing. The problem is, PK, that in the government's own budget papers, it's there in black and white because government, the papers admit, the, the budget admits that the government's already spent $2.8 billion on supporting employers to take on apprentices. There was another $1.2 billion of subsidies for apprentices and traineeships in the budget. But according to Treasury, so far 14,000, of the 180,000 apprentices, so that's 8%, only 14% of the 180,000 apprentices helped by the current program are women. So it's not working. There is a gendered response because it's skewed wildly to, for whatever reason, employing male apprentices. Apprentices, and that might be fine. That might be the construction industry needs a big boost. That might be let's 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 name it. Um, but then, what about the other side of the equation? Where is the si- significant boost then to get women into apprentices and trainee schemes? And, and we're not seeing it.
1: No, we're not. And this is going to continue to be an issue for the government. They're going to have to, I think, say more on this rather than just pointing to what they've already done. Uh, I, You know, my prediction is that it's going to become a mounting issue for them and um, I think that they're very sensitive to it. Uh, I just get the sense that they know that this is a Bit of a bit of an issue that they need to address, and if you look at kind of the the core numbers, clearly, particularly for older women, Fran, it's an issue. Like if you look at mature age women, they're the largest group by age and gender. That's thirteen point seven percent of total new start recipients. This is a cohort that is disproportionately represented, and that you'd think they would be targeted help for. Mm. But given now we are in so much debt and deficit, and the government has kind of embraced that strategy, you know, we're all came Ins now sort of thing, right? Like, we're all into spending. I, I suspect that there they might be – I'm not saying I know, because they've just delivered a budget, but they, that there might be room to move. I don't know if they're going to be quite as fixed.
2: Yeah. I mean, it is worth noting there is a a women's package in the budget. Um, It's called the Women's Economic Security Package. It's $240 million, which is not much money anyway, but actually it's $240 million over five years. So the government can't really hide behind that. Um, PK, there's another element of the budget that's um, emerging, creating a bit of debate. When we had our post-budget wrap, you and I, I mentioned the billion dollars that was being saved by reducing the humanitarian intake, the number of refugees. G's taken the. We had a cap of over eighteen thousand a year. That's been reduced to over thirteen thousand a year for four years, at a savings of one billion dollars. But there's also now something else within this budget, um, in terms of people who are applying to be um, permanent residents, and it's a new English language test that's going to be introduced for a partner or a spouse um, of a permanent of a non permanent resident, and they're going to have to speak. English, uh, they're going to have to pass what's called a functional English test. And this is going to, it's not a fixed test. It's more about general levels of English. But the proof of it is quite a stringent amount of English language classes, as it turns out. I think this is
1: astonishing. So this it means that prospective visa applicants have to undertake, what, I think it's 500 hours of English language classes, right?
2: Well, that's what the minister says they expect would be needed to <sighs> fulfil this functional English test. 500 hours, that's a lot, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it is a lot. But this is pretty
1: potentially, and I'm going to use a strong word, but this is actively discriminating um, for people who speak English now. Usually, you can sponsor partners that are, you know, speak. I don't know another language. Greek. Oh, I speak Greek, uh, and and that's fine. Now we are. I'm I'm troubled by this. I'm I, I wonder why do we need to do this? Why is this so necessary? What is going on here? What is motivating this? And in a country, and I'm going to make this point and people would expect me to if they know the kind of work I've been doing for a long time, a country where, you know, 200 Indigenous languages are here, a country which, yes, might be dominantly English spoken now, but historically and still very much the contemporary story in Australia is that this is not... An English country. This is a country with a plethora of Indigenous languages. I kind of am often troubled by the idea of this uh, monolingual model that we set up. I think it puts us in, on the back foot, not the front foot. We should be Look- proud of our diversity
2: yeah, I think we should be proud of our multicultural um, society and community, Um, but I don't think there's anything wrong with the government investing in, you know, people learning new arrivals, learning English, because it does help navigate the system. It does help be a fully, you know, participant, a full participant, if you like, in all aspects of life, if you choose to be. It's very hard if you have little English to be, you know, fully involved in the workforce, for instance. So you can see why you want a government investment in there. but I think it was the 500 hours functional test that was a problem and the proof is that this is a saving to the government, this measure. $4.9 million over the four years of the forward estimates is what the budget papers say. So, you know, I'm not sure why there would be a saving on this because if you're going to get people up to speed and it's not going to be discriminatory or a barrier, another barrier, if you like, to people getting, um, you know, their visas, then you need to be investing a hell of a lot of money on these English language classes.
1: I think that's absolutely right. Look, you know, watch that space. I think it's a really interesting debate we're having. And if you look at just generally the forward projections on population and the fact that we're going to be a smaller... we're going to really have fewer people coming into Australia as well. Uh, I spoke to a demographer, Liz Allen from the ANU, who sort of said we're going to be a sort of whiter, older society as a result of this budget or this pandemic. And that's certainly something that I think is worth exploring too. Hey, Fran, should we bring in our guest? I reckon we should. <laughs> Time to speak to Shane Wright, his senior economics correspondent for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Hello, Shane.
0: Hello, marvellous Cavallus, and hello, Miss Kelly.
2: <laughs> marvellous Cavallus, I love that. Shane, um, Pika, and I have been talking about some of the obvious losers in the budget and really focusing on women and older workers. There are always losers in every budget, and you've covered a lot of them. But the fact is there's so much money being spent this time, record spending, to try and sort of get this pandemic-afflicted economy moving again, was it surprising to you, Shane, that these close, these particular cohorts seem to have been left out? And, and what are the implications, economic implications of that in terms of leaving these out?
0: I could say it was surprising, except, of course, women, <laughs> especially those over 45, uh, have been at the wrong end of the policy stick for the best part of a decade on both sides of politics. So... Surprising if you just ignore what's been going on for a decade um, in terms of the support. Now the government does say it has a program in place to help uh, older workers get back into employment, but as we as we know, in the Parliamentary Budget Office uh, reported last week, the number of people in their forties, fifties, and sixties who are women who are on new or job seeker for a long period of time is really going through the roof. So that policy. As, as much merit as it has it's not really working as well as it should and then you you're exactly right Fran, you get to this uh, a budget which has got more more money than you can poke a stick at being floated around and the policy the clear policy direction is at people under 35 and getting them into work. so and you can is, understand there why. is a tension there.
2: You can understand why there's that, but there's 900 and something thousand Australians, men and women, more than half of them women, over the age of 35 who are out of work. Um, when JobKeeper comes off next March, you would think that number is likely to grow because some people will come out of what we're calling zombie businesses, businesses that are only being kept alive, basically, because of JobKeeper. When that stops in March, uh, there must be an expectation that the job the jobless queues will surge. So, you know, does the government have a plan for that?
0: They, their argument is that they do, and they point to, say, the training programs that they've put in place, which are available to all businesses, uh, to all people. Um, and Free uh, short like courses
2: a, and things like that.
0: Things like that, yeah. Uh, and there is a, a large number, that, and the argument that that their program, say, the lost carry back or the business investment allowance uh, programs will help businesses put on staff, and they're absolutely right. But that does not stop coming back to the point that there was a problem in unemployment, particularly a, a, aimed at older women, before we went into coronavirus pandemic. And it's not going to get any better. So the gut of Scott Morrison's argument, and he's absolutely right, you cannot fault him on this, is that young people suffer long-term mm-hmm. scarring if they don't get a job early in their in their lives and yes. so you can understand yep that is why you're going down that path however that that glaring omission around what's going on and for your listeners like say 2007 there was i think it's about 73,000 women uh, who had been on new, on their new start for an extended period of time compared to 130,000 men there are now more than two hundred forty. There was wow. pre coronavirus, pre virus, two hundred forty thousand women, compared to less than that for men. That and and the, and the PBA actually says it is a blow. And the PBA says, right, the new start or new start slash job seeker has become a de facto aged pension for many people. Mm. That is a failure of policy on both sides. It's not. Yeah, you can't just hang it on Morrison or Turnbull. Gillard has... Julia Gillard's government actually has a lot to do with this in terms of some of its policy prescriptions. So, yeah, yep. all, everyone has a, a vested uh, interest in, their fa- in the failure in this... It's extremely important policy response. I had an economist yesterday saying, well, look, it's, it, it is important to focus on 35 and under because of the long-term issue. And I said, well, you tell that to a 50-year-old woman who might want to work for the next 17 years... You've got a choice between working 17 years or job seeker for 17 years. I know which one yeah, is absolutely. better for the woman and for the country.
1: Well, Let's talk about tax, because the government has been really trumpeting the benefits of backdating stage two of the income tax cuts to July the 1st this year. But the middle income tax offset means people aren't going to get the backdated amount until they lodge their tax return. Has the government been a bit tricky on this one, um, do you think, Shane?
0: Uh, I think... The trickiness was actually the the way that they presented the tables in Budget Night, comparing everything to 2017-18. Now, if you can remember how much tax uh, you paid, Patricia, and I'm sure it was some astronomical (laughs) amount, uh, given your uh, salubrious career here at the ABC, um, if you can remember how much you paid then and then... Compare it to now. Good luck. Nice. Most people, most people can only compare it to last year. That is all they do, and that's the government went out of its way to make sure you didn't see that in the in the tables that they presented. But look, there are smarter people than I have been able to calculate. Yep, yeah, this is what's going on. The Lamington, which is what we call that low income and middle income tax offset, you don't get it until you do your tax the following year. So, yeah, people will get a, a burst of cash at that point. In July, August, September next year, but for people over, uh, with higher incomes, they will see a much bigger bounce to their check, or their paycheck relatively quickly once this gets through. uh, Well, in fact,
2: we're going to get it through in weeks, aren't we? Because Labor's written to the tax office say we'll support it, so it should be there by early next month. Shane, this budget is about restoring business confidence and consumer confidence. That's key to the economic recovery from after this pandemic. The Treasurer talked on Budget Night a lot about hope. But does this budget... Offer hope, and are there other ways to do that beyond, you know, just banking on economic repair, kind of lifting all boats, if you like. You know, young Australians are looking at lower wages for some time. We know that carrying big national debt for some time, that's being baked in here. Um, housing markets are tough. Education for many has just got more expensive with the changes that are going through. Are there other things, other signs the government could have done with all this money, a budget at this moment in time? that might have, you know, signalled hope. Programs about... I mean, I know there were some measures to help young people get in the housing market, but some sort of inspiration... I don't know really what they might be, but about affordable housing and um, other sort of social programs.
0: Look, um, one of the things... Like, I've, this was my 22nd budget, and the thing you always say is budgets are about choices. Now, the government has made its choices, and it's, it's putting a lot of faith in, one, businesses... And I, you can ap- absolutely make sense. And it, it may not be sexy, but trying to get businesses uh, to invest, to bring through people, on absolutely fine option. The tax cuts also feeds, as you say, into that confidence issue. Other policies, and I, I mentioned the other day that yeah, you they could have done other things. So I mentioned say like so many governments around the world are borrowing from e- each other. Say the uh, job keeper effectively was a replication of some aspects of wage subsidies in other countries. The government could have borrowed from what the NT Tasmanian West Australian governments has done, which is give vouchers out to people specifically to spend on tourism um, that and those programs have been absolutely really successful mm. in those three territories mm. could have done that but that would run into the the argument that the government keep that mounted even this week that. Uh, we are giving people tax cuts we we it's up to them to decide how they spend their money so you're getting into almost into the ideological side of things where you, the the government is comfortable with what it's put out and it believes that is enough to do the confidence trick others might have come up with different options which they thought would give a <laughs> to to get the confidence yeah. fairy to sprinkle their dust over well, everybody. Well let's go
1: to what other things they could have done because this has allowed Labor really a good opportunity to make their case for what they think should have happened in this budget tonight and we're recording this on a, on a Thursday morning so it depends when you listen but Anthony Albanese will give his official reply speech, that's sort of standard, we all know that they do that we're expecting a couple of major announcements, one on childcare. they're really trying to zero in on the, the the woman question, the, the failure to deal with the women's participation issue in this budget that we've been talking about. But they're also going to spend 500000000 million, they've already announced, on repairs to social housing. Here's the Shadow Treasurer, Jim Chalmers. The most labour-intensive and fastest way to get that stimulus into the system is to do maintenance. Uh, and we think that we, could,
0: we should be doing $500 million of maintenance. There's 100,000 properties we think that need work. Uh, that work can begin almost immediately. And that's crucial it- for an economy that's not very
1: strong. Okay, so Anthony Albanese's challenge is essentially to position himself and Labor as the better, you know, better managers of how to get the money out to actually build the country and also to deal with the blind spots the government's had. What what do you make of this approach? Um, I, I want to know, Shane. I mean, do you think that this is the right sort of space for them to be getting into?
0: Social housing was, was and continues to be the obvious area, and we talked... About ideological barriers and social housing is one where this government says no that is a state responsibility and that to to their credit they've been constant in that they haven't changed their their position on it but every economist you talk to says right if you put money into social housing that means that's money flowing into almost every community in the country it employs your tradies which uh, we hear so many so much about um and and the money actually is very local. And you're not importing a great, much, uh, m- a great amount in terms of uh, materials. So you can see why, uh, as a stimulus measure, it's such a... It, it, it stands out for most economists as something you would do. But, again, we're in that ideological space where the government made it clear, no, we're, ban- we're, we're putting our, our faith and hope in the private sector rather than getting governments involved. Then again, they are spending money on infrastructure, and they're badgering the states to spend their own amount on infrastructure. So, yeah, it, it, it depa- always comes down to the the colour of your uh, of your infrastructure or where it goes. <laughs> that so uh, you get some differences going yeah. on.
1: Now, just finally, Shane, uh, look, a huge announcement really in many ways from the government uh, after, you know, while, while we've been recording. Let's just get into it. Australia's going to nominate the outgoing finance minister, Matthias Cormann, for the position of Secretary-General of the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. And at the same time, the government's made some really significant announcements, I think, on who takes over uh, Mathias Cormann's role. And I'm not surprised about who it is, not only because it's been sort of speculated in the media, but I think out of the, the, the government he's the most competent and capable. Trade Minister Simon Birmingham will take over the finance portfolio when he retires at the end of October. And he's actually also going to play that role, isn't he, as sort of the head of the Senate or whatever you like. Um, what is it called again? The head of government business in the Senate. Um, I think Michaela Cash is going to take the deputy role. And then we're going to get the bigger shake-up, what, in December. It's, it's pretty big news, really, given the role Matthias Cormann's been playing.
0: Yeah, but and frighteningly, I remember when he started here. So that's. Same here, mate. Is, <laughs> I know. The bushy-eyed, bright, br- bushy-tailed, eyed bushy bright-eyed uh, new senator from, uh, from WA, who, um, if you. Re- no one will remember this, but he wasn't the shadow finance minister when uh, Abbott won office. No. He was in charge of superannuation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you had the, the switch uh, with Andrew Robb. Uh, who went into trade to focus on free trade agreements, and you had Matthias Cormann brought in. Um, abs- Matthias's life story is interesting. It, it tells you so much about, about Australia, an immigrant who could... I don't think he even could speak English when he came to uh, WA. And now he's You'll have he's to do those 500
2: hours of functional English literacy you <laughs> may have done he, classes.
0: <laughs> come on he speaks better English than uh, many uh native borns might I say um, and the way that uh, yeah he he has he's just delivered so much policy ballast for the government through everything since it came to office um, that doesn't mean there has been missteps everyone talks about Joe hockey's 2014 budget the finance minister was Matthias Cormann.
1: The cigar uh, picture—we're never going to forget that. The cigar
0: picture. Well, the cigar. You, you look. You, you love the flim-flam, but I was more worried about the <laughs> policy in that space.
2: Well, and, that's right. Yeah, Joe Hockey paid People a huge remember, price for that though, budget. That,
0: that, that they do. Well, they I do. Mean, might, and, he... say the and the, the agreement he struck with Clive Palmer over rolling back the yes. uh, FOFA laws. He's got a very
2: good relationship too with uh, Labour's Penny Wong, who's the leader of the do. opposition in the Senate. So they work through. So no doubt he's, you know, delivered in terms of competencies, very safe pair of hands. But I tell you what, my, my radio audience, um, because he has such a capacity to come on and say nothing, to block everything, which is why the government considers him a safe pair of hands, he drives the audience crazy often, I must say.
0: That's right. And, uh, <laughs> and now you've got Simon Birmingham, who's a, yeah. A, he, he's not quite uh, the He's a dab hand at that too, same. though, I reckon. He, he's um, pretty the, good at it, yeah.
2: The, the, as Pico said, this will end up in a wider reshuffle at the end of the year. I think Matthias Kormans finishes up completely, but he'll be out of the ministry by the end of, of this month. Um, and there's a, a lot of ruminations going on there already about that, particularly what might happen in a broader reshuffle to Peter Dutton, who's had home affairs for such a long time, that super portfolio, and a lot of talk about where he might go, with some suggesting it could be defence so there'll be a bit of speculation starting up soon i'd say wouldn't you shane what well, we're in canberra and it's
0: that's all you're <laughs> going to do there's an open, there's a hole in the ministry of course there's going to be speculation um, and be, and you're getting to that point like let's say there's an expectation of a spring election next year like we're really like we're not all that far out like in, in the grand scheme of things, which is absolutely frightening. Mm-hmm. There's another budget, like this is it, we've just had one, and there's another budget in May next year, which is I think is going to be more problematic for the government because they actually have to make a few tougher decisions and throwing a lot of cash out the door. You're missing that your finance minister who knows where every hollow log sits and where every problem could arise and you've got that tension of those younger MPs who might have been missed who missed out last year after the surprise victory by Morrison who are thinking oh my, this my, this is my chance to uh, get into the ministry or into cabinet oh it just never ends does it
1: no it never <laughs> ends uh, shane you've been so fun to hang out with come back okay
0: anytime i get an invitation
2: from you lovely ladies see you shane <laughs> cheers guys before we go the bells are ringing it's question time PK, we've got this one from Sean this week. It says, Hi, Fran and PK. I struggle to remember the sequence of Prime Ministers for the last 10 years. How do you manage to have all the facts, figures and history to hand when interviewing someone about Australia's energy policy? Love the show. Thanks, Sean. Well, thank you, Sean. PK, Uh, good question. It is a great question.
1: Look, there's a lot of categories for how we do it. One of them is that we do have some fantastic people who work with us. Fran and I like to think we're geniuses, but we do actually have fantastic producers. We do. Um, so we have people who assist us and do research. Uh, so that's key. But also, I mean, we've been around for a while. Fran's been around longer than me, and I don't say that in an you ageist way. That, happy
2: birthday,
1: Fran! <laughs> we're recording this on her birthday, so good segue. Um, happy birthday, Fran. Thanks, PK. We should be partying, but we're not. We're hanging out on the podcast. Look, we do, you know, you do build up a lot of um, memory and, and knowledge after you cover things for a really long period of time. That's why once you get into journalism, you got—you got to stick to it for a long time because then you can actually know, you know, where all the bodies are buried policy-wise and human. Was in terms of um, scalps. So it does mean that you can be more useful, I think, in those accountability interviews as well. But look, you know, absolute shout out to the people who work with us. We, we do not work alone.
2: No, that's exactly right. I have a terrific team of producers and they help give me prep for every interview I do, which I study the night before and I have to hand with me in the morning. Um, but PK's is right. I mean, I've been following this energy debate, Uh, for my sins, for a couple of decades now. And, of course, at different points in that career, I read things like Marion Wilkinson's new book, The Carbon Club, which absolutely traces the whole energy policy debate over that couple of decades. So you build up your knowledge, hopefully, and, um, yeah, hopefully you can bring it to bear when you need to, live on the radio
1: yeah that's right and we all have specialties too don't we Fran like you know we've been political correspondents both of us but we've also you know covered specific rounds or taken an interest and I have certain things I know more about you're you're amazing on energy I'm quite obsessed with indigenous affairs like we have our things and then we have people who help us out so that's actually how the sausage is made I hope you enjoy the sausage once we present it to you mostly Um, we very much love your questions too so keep sending them through as well Yeah, we do.
2: That's it for The Party Room this week, but we do want to give you a heads up on an RN podcast that we're really excited about right now. We
1: sure are. It's called This Working Life. It's hosted by Lisa Leong, and it's all about work and life, but, but mostly work.
2: Uh, it's quirky and it's controversial. There are a tonne of experts on hand to help, letting you in on the sort of ideas and experiments and, and fast fails that will kick your work life into gear.
1: And you can find This Working Life wherever you normally get your podcasts. Well, that's it from us till next week, where we'll give you the lowdown on all things political. See you, friend. See you, PK.
0: As a businessman and presidential candidate, Donald Trump was extremely harsh on Saudi Arabia. Who blew up the World Trade Center? It wasn't the Iraqis, it was Saudi. But after Trump's son-in-law became best buds with the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, that changed, just in time for it all to go horribly wrong.
1: You don't bring a bone saw to an accidental fist fight.
0: I'm Matt Bevan, and that story is in this week's episode of America If You're Listening, on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.